Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar along with ESPN's Courtney Cronin. And uh, Courtney, my ears have recovered yesterday from vibrating due to screaming children at Friendly Hills Middle School where you and I were there interviewing multiple members of the Minnesota Vikings organization and also watching them give out backpacks following OTAs. That was a unique experience. It was. It was their team give back event. Uh, It was kind of cool in that gym, even though it was 113 degrees, watching uh, Mike Zimmer scout scout kids doing the ladder drill and – Rick Spielman going through the drills, coaching kids up. I mean, it's it's fun to see them in that kind of environment, and they do do a lot of it. Someone joked with Zimmer like, hey, are you scouting here? And he actually thought about it for a second, was like, well, there are some good athletes. There's a lot of good athletes here. Like, <laughs> he, he, can't, he can't break mold. Like, that is who he is. He's, I, I, kept, I was taking a photo of the kids doing the, uh, the ladder drill, um, and Zimmer's eyes were down at their feet. I'm like, come on, guy. Like, it's not that serious. But the funny thing was, after that, um, Tom Compton was calling it the ladder of doom and, like, getting the kids hype and going through it himself. And Kirk Cousins wouldn't touch it. Like, you know, you just kind of want you, – like, you got $84 million. It's all guaranteed. Like, if you, if you tweak something here by, you know, some strange circumstance, you're going to be okay. Uh, financially, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, Compton taking one for the team. The recent history of knees in Minnesota makes me think like, don't do anything, Kirk. Make Tom Compton do it. We could sacrifice him. Uh, Poor Tom Compton. So lots going on yesterday aside from that. Uh, First on the list being that Anthony Barr returned to OTAs still without a deal, and what got the headline was that he has now insurance on himself just in case he gets hurt in OTAs, that he missed last week getting paperwork finalized with uh, an insurance policy to protect him because he doesn't have a new deal. But what stuck out to me more than the insurance policy, because I'm guessing that a lot of people do this, he just decided he was going to talk about it, was that he said he had expected or wanted a deal to be done 
by OTAs. Did you read that as them being close or there being friction here? I don't think there's friction. I say, I mean, they've got a long history with Barr's agent. Uh, he's represented by Athletes First, who represents a lot of, you know, Kyle Rudolph. A lot of the Notre Dame guys are represented by that firm, Barr as well. Um, so they've got, they they know who they're dealing with here. And, and for me, I take a look at this situation as, okay, Barr's back at camp uh, for OTAs. You know, he's not going to, all signs are pointing to him being there for the mandatory mini camp. So he's, and that's important because if, you, if you're not there, you're fined upwards of $85,000 for missing it. Um, and taking out the insurance policy and getting back as quickly as, you know, he, he could because apparently there was like an issue. It just, you know, took longer than he expected um, shows dedication on his part. So for me, I look at this as, okay, the, the talks are, you know, as he said, his agent, you know, the talks are good. He doesn't have a lot of details on that. But I do anticipate this getting done before training camp because, you know, other than that, why would Anthony Barr come back as quickly as he did? And, I mean, I think the insurance policy is important. We saw it with Leonard Fournette uh, two years ago. He took out two $10 million insurance policies um, when he was still at LSU. It's because, you know, the CBA, he couldn't leave uh, to go to go to the NFL um, early, uh, you know, before the end of his – before he was finished with his junior season. So, I mean, it's smart – it's a smart thing to do. And I think that it shows dedication that Barr wants to be around his teammates. He doesn't have to. This is all voluntary, and it's not like he doesn't know the defense. Um, but it, it all signs point to okay, this is this this will get done eventually because he's back and he got back a lot sooner than I think some people were thinking. I think so too. This team seems like they're dedicated to Anthony Barr, and something really rings in my head every time we talk about this is when Mike Zimmer said last year, of course, when Barr was playing extremely well, he said, when I drafted him, something, yes. something, something. I forget what the rest of the comment was, but I kind of think that shows what Zimmer's connection to Barr is. And even going back to 2016, when Zimmer was really hard on Anthony Barr, maybe part of that was just how much Zimmer is invested in Anthony Barr's success. And he seems like a guy that they want to keep around for a very long time. Now, with Eric Hendricks, he got his deal done first. So that kind of sets the standard, the number there that we'd be looking at for paying Anthony Barr. Five years, $50 million, $25 million guaranteed. Do you think that Barr gets the same or higher than that? I think he has to get higher just from the standard of, you know, three Pro Bowls. Um, you take a look, I guess, you know, kind of his trajectory. Yeah, his numbers um, aren't the same, and Kendrick certainly had the better season top to bottom than Barr did last year. It, it puts you in a tricky spot if you're the Vikings because you have, you know, a linebacker who whose primary duties are not to rush the passer. So where where do you cap that? Do you cap that as at a um, – we've talked about this before, like at an Alec Ogletree or Vontez Burfecht, uh type number, type figure. Kendrick's already has that. Uh, for what he's going to average, you know, in, in in terms of the guaranteed money when he signed the five-year, $50 million contract extension in April. I think Barr has to top that just simply for the fact of, you know, who he is um, and, and what he means within the scheme of this defense. Kendrick's really and truly was the easier deal to get done. I think Barr's going to be a lot more tricky just from, you know, a numbers standpoint. And the thing that comes to mind for me is positional value. And when you look at 
what some of the top linebackers are making, unless you're Luke Keekley, it's very hard to get full value out of someone who isn't, like you said, creating a lot of pressure, getting a lot of sacks. And that's where when you try to make these comparisons of linebackers, it's kind of a hard thing to do because they play the nickel package, so they only play the two linebackers. And when you compare guys like Keekley is being paid twelve over twelve million, Bobby Wagner's at ten, Eric Hendricks right now, just for guys who are pure inside linebackers, is one of the highest paid. But when you look at the outside linebackers, it's a lot of guys who rush the passer more often or are a little bit better all around players. So trying to figure out exactly what he's worth is kind of challenging. And just when you look at where this league is going and most we've gone from everyone plays base package with three linebackers all the time, except on third down. Now everyone plays nickel package all the time. Almost. Are we going even farther than that where teams are going to start playing one linebacker most of the time, and then some sort of hybrid safety. And if they do, is he going to be worth having that much of your salary cap tied up in him And it's not that they can't afford it because their cap is fine and they've done a great job with it. And even with Kirk Cousins contract, they could still afford it. It's more about, do you want to put that money into a linebacker who doesn't get you a ton of sacks and is just okay in coverage? Or do you want to put it into someone else? You know, maybe a big free agent or something like that. It it just shows you the positional value and really the true value of the player as a whole of someone like Harrison Smith because of all that he does in being able to play up near the line of scrimmage, um, you know, kind of morph sometimes into an outside linebacker, but still, you know, have the speed of a safety and all that he does. I mean, he plays so many positions uh, for them on the back end of the defense and even in the middle of the field too, that I, you know, if you really are asking, you know, I, th- I think you go out and eventually find someone to dump the value into to that way. Did you just get more for more for your money? Um, especially with the way that these, as you said, the defenses are changing. I mean, how often they, t- most games last year, I'll chart it this year, but I know I'd always tweet it out. Like Vikings are starting in their nickel. Like, I mean, that's typically what you're seeing now. So, so with the, with the two linebacker spots and, you know, kind of also brings into, into effect, you know, Michael Kendrick's visit this week, where would he fit in if he does indeed want to sign with the Vikings uh, just because of the way that the linebackers are used in Minnesota, I think that it just makes Barb's deal so much trickier because is he he becoming less and less multidimensional because of the way that they use him? And maybe that's to no fault of his own, but do you really want to have to pay more than what you're paying a better run stopper um, and, and, you know, what, what Eric Kendrick's got? I mean, I think it just makes sense that, you know, he's going to want more, but I don't know if he necessarily value-wise is worth it. So something that was in my mind this week with Michael Kendricks visiting was, would you rather have Michael Kendricks, who was really highly rated by Pro Football Focus last year, wasn't initially going to be a, a huge player for them on defense, but things changed. Maybe there was an injury in there, and he ended up playing uh, 60% of snaps for the Eagles last year on a Super Bowl winning team. If you had the choice between signing Michael Kendricks for a four-year deal for $15 million or something like that, or $20 million, or Anthony Barr for a five-year deal for 50 plus, maybe 55, it's hard for me to justify 
the, the latter of those two, because I, I think that either Kendricks is just as good or maybe even better, Michael Kendricks, that is, and mm-hmm. Barr is going to get paid more based on the fact that he was a first-round pick and has been selected to Pro Bowls over the last two years, largely on the fact that he was very good in 2014 and 2015. At least that's the way it comes across to me, because I don't think that his last two years of performances were actually Pro Bowl caliber. And if that's the way that the two sides are looking at it, if the Vikings are looking at it as, we want to keep you, but let's understand where your value actually is in the league, and his side is looking at it as, uh, <clears throat> Pro Bowls, guys, um, this could take a while to get worked out. Yeah, I could see that, but I still think it's something where before training camp, July 28th, let's say, take a look at how these deals all got done and all got out of the way last year with uh, Joseph Griffin and Rhodes. Um, I think that the the path to getting those deals done was probably a little bit easier. Um, they certainly didn't have the cap, the cap issues then, um, even though they were probably projecting to what this was going to be like in 2018. But I, I just think that they're going to have to get something done with Barr soon because then it's going to get contentious. Then it's going to get a little bit more, heated when it's like okay I took the insurance policy out I want to be here I want to you know continue my career here past you know my fifth year in the league um and it just makes things tricky because you know I'm I'm of the view that your most important one of your most important deals you have to get done next is Stefan Diggs Mm -hmm. um and I just don't think that's going to happen which um you know I I've as as we kind of get get on with this, I'm sure we'll get a little bit more clarity as to how both sides are feeling. But to me, they're going to want to the Vikings are going to want to see how well uh, Diggs plays and how much better his game gets than with Kirk Cousins as his quarterback and how he can elevate Kirk Cousins' game because they made an investment. Um, they want their quarterback to have you know his weapon, his go-to guy for the for the next few years. I just don't think they're going to be able to get that deal done before. Uh, the 2018 season, I think they want him to play out his rookie contract, but that just makes things tough because if you sign Barr ahead of that, then the figures you're looking at between Daniil Hunter and Stefan Diggs, I mean, you might be looking at one of them walking. So for me, Barr, Barr makes things kind of complicated because it's almost like, you know, as you said with Mike Zimmer, it's his stand on the table guy. I mean, he wants his defensive guys extended. They spent a lot of money on offense in, in the off season. In that you know, there's got to be some sort of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours here in, in making sure that the guys who are the foundational core pieces of his defense are around as long as he's here in Minnesota. Well, it will be something that we're watching all the way up to training camp because if you start camp without a Hunter deal or a Diggs deal or Bar deal, that's where it's like, okay, is something going to happen or not? I mean, last year we got into camp just a little bit, just a few days before Xavier Rhodes deal was announced and there was lots of buzz leading up to like everyone knew it was going to happen. And this year it could be a major camp storyline of whether those guys are going to get their deals done. I think because of that, the team would far prefer to get them done and then announce them at training camp. Um, I'm going to just go through my other things that I had from yesterday and you can interject or give me your list or whatever you want to do. Treadwell being with the first team are, are we starting the new Laquan Treadwell? Now he's figured it out. It doesn't have that same feel of last year where it was like, oh, he's finally learned that he's got to 
run routes with technique. It, it's more of eh, maybe he's taking a little bit better of a mental approach, and he made a couple of very good plays in front of the media. Not that that means a lot at OTAs. Yeah, I mean, the diving touchdown catch in the red zone was good. Um, and obviously he's getting a lot of work in right now with the ones, um, over Kendall Wright, which I was a little bit surprised by because you, you take a look at that free agent signing and, you know, what can, what, you know, every, everybody kind of expected when Wright was taken here with, uh, you know, brought in here where you're going to have your two guys, you know, you're gonna probably move feeling a little bit more outside and Wright can be your primary slot guy. Um, that's kind of how I thought it was going to shape up. And now Wright's going to get most of his work done with the twos and threes. Stacy Coley hurt himself last week, which, you know, hinders him just from a rep standpoint uh, here in OTAs. And I think Treadwell has a really good opportunity right now with those two circumstances in mind. And also, I mean, Wright said last week that this offense is a lot. Like, they're, he, they're running stuff he's never run before. So I wonder, too, if that's a matter of just kind of catching on and getting comfortable um, where – you know, it's probably some of the same concepts that Treadwell's seen over the last two or three, two years that he's been here that John DiFilippo has taken from Pat Shermer's playbook and what the Vikings ran before um, and implementing it here where Wright didn't see that before. So he's probably still catching on. Um, but I think Treadwell's got a really good opportunity here. It's just, I think it's fair to kind of hold your breath for a little bit uh, to see if this is actually going to pan out because there had been points during, you know, other off-season stuff in years past where he's looked good. I mean, I think he looks his best right now, but um, kind of improve-it mode for me and and certainly for himself uh, going into his third year. Now, to your point, I totally agree uh, with holding off on Laquan has figured it out. The, uh, the, the Kendall Wright thing, if he's still practicing with the second team when we get to training camp, then I'll be a little bit concerned about where he's going to fit in. I'm really interested to see where John Filippo lines these guys up. If Kendall Wright is indeed the number three wide receiver, which I believe he will be. Uh, when I've looked at the Philadelphia Eagles offense, they lined up their wide receivers in all sorts of different places all the time. And that seems perfectly fitting for Adam Thielen and Stefan Diggs. That the one thing that I had a little bit of concern about with Kendall Wright being signed is that he's been so predominantly a slot receiver. So does he, mm-hmm. does he need to be in the slot? Is that going to take away some slot situations from Thielen and Diggs where they've both had a lot of success over the last two years? And also you pointed this out when we were just chatting yesterday, the, um, use of two tight end sets that uh, Kirk Cousins yeah. was really good in those in Washington last year, David Morgan and Kyle Rudolph were a great combination. I don't want to see those go away. I don't think they will. I mean, and that's, that's typically what the offense has been predicated around in a lot of different places that John Filippo has been, I mean, to, to his own credit and to just those he's been around. I mean, in Cleveland, Gary Barnage was their leading receiver, and he was a tight end. Last year, uh, Zach Ertz and Trey Burton were critical assets in the passing game in part of two tight end sets that really stepped up what Carson Wentz was able to do in the red zone. Um, that's, that's a huge part in kind of an underrated storyline of the, the tight end success that they had in the red zone last year of why Wentz was able to turn around so heavily um, from year one to year two. I think that's the biggest jump. Uh, that you can note with his game. So I don't think those will go away. I think 
I think we'll see a lot more of it. I mean, do they have this, the playmaking F tight end that they wanted? I don't know if Tyler Conklin is that guy. I would like to think that he could be. Um, I know that there were some other names that were a lot higher on the Vikings draft board, um, you know, in, in hopes of, I know Herndon was one of them being able to get, you know, that, that being able to grab a tight end like that earlier in the draft, but we'll see. I think, you know, in, in Conklin, we haven't been able to see a whole ton of him in, in team sessions that he's been working on the rehab field. Don't really know what the, what the ailment is there, but, you know, by training camp, I think that once they have a few more of those designs and wrinkles installed, um, it's really only going to open up the passing game for Cousins and, you know, be able to do a little bit more in the red zone and fitting the ball through some pretty tight windows, as we saw yesterday when he, um, you know, even he said uh, he, he, he messed up a throw. To, he didn't throw to Kyle Rudolph um, in the red zone. And obviously, he's the most, one of the most targeted tight ends in the red zone the last three years. Um, Cousins is going to learn very quickly that that is one of his security blankets there, and that should be one of his go-to guys. And I think that maybe Conklin could develop into, you know, that second threat there. So you have, you know, two really key passing threats um, from your tight ends. Well, what should our expectations be of Kyle Rudolph in this offense? When when I've been – I've just been going back through the Eagles from last year, and maybe – that's not what John D. Filippo is going to do. He's not going to copy the Eagles offense. Maybe it's going to be all different stuff and we'll be totally surprised. But uh, I think the Eagles offense is the most modern along with the Rams in the entire NFL. Maybe the Chiefs would also be up there for teams that use all different looks all the time. But also they use their tight ends, especially the, the Chiefs and the Eagles and Zach Ertz, every time I go back and look at anything he did last year, I'm blown away. I mean, I think he's yeah. one of the I think he's one of the best players in the entire NFL. Kyle Rudolph is not Zach Ertz. I mean, he does not have the route running skill. He's not as quick. He's not a vertical threat like Zach Ertz can be. They also don't have a Trey Burton who can go down the field and runs a four six and things like that. I, I'm curious about how they'll manage Rudolph because I thought Pat Shermer last year did a really brilliant job of getting him involved in ways that maybe opponents didn't expect. Every once in a while, they would have a third and short and run a screen pass on a play action to Kyle Rudolph. And it's like, okay, well, I didn't see screen pass to Kyle Rudolph on the list for things I expected <laughs> today. You know, I mean, how do you think that they're going to use Rudolph? Will it be just as a guy that's big in the red zone? I mean, the red zones is bread and butter. I don't think you can take that away. And I don't, I don't think that you'd want to take that away um, from, you know, just the benefit for a guy who had like an 80.4 quarterback rating in the red zone last year. Um, to me, that's going to be pretty important to have that security blanket and have, you know, ha have your go-to guy being someone who is proven down there in the red zone. I could also see though, you know, with, with what they did with their tight ends, I don't think you're going to have, you're not going to be able to mimic, even though the NFL is a copycat league. So I do think we're going to see a lot of Philadelphia concepts, maybe not, you know, a direct rip from the playbook, but concepts. Um, I think that you can mix what Conklin does. I mean, assuming that he will be, I'm not saying he's a day one starter, but you know, he's a lot more versatile than some of the other tight ends that at least we expect him to be that they have on their roster between, you know, David Morgan and Blake Bell. But, you know, the third down stuff that you, that you brought up was huge and Cousins struggled on third down. That was another one of his area, uh, one, one of the areas of his games that, 
you know, a lot of people knocked uh, as the Vikings were making this this uh, this decision to bring him in here. So it's it's something too that I think that maybe they go back and look at where where Cousins succeeds the most, and that you know, for me, I'm looking at the deep ball. Rudolph had a 39, almost a 40% reception percentage on 18 targets from 2015 to 17 uh, that went 20 yards or more. So not a huge sample size, but why not draw some wrinkles up to do that? I mean, yeah, he's getting he's getting up there in age, and yeah, he's coming off the ankle surgery, but there's it's not to say that he can't get downfield and get open quickly. Um, you know, to be able to, you know, throw that design in there and, and something we haven't seen from him all that often, but something he can certainly do. The touchdown catch against Detroit was one that comes to mind where Case Keenum where Keenum nearly got killed on the, um, and that, that on was, the throw. That was going to be my point is it takes Rudolph so long to get downfield that you better have really good protection, which kind of takes me to the next thing that I wanted to bring up, <laughs> which is offensive line combinations it was something that we were going into OTAs really curious about where these things stand and what the Vikings will try and and I think I I came away from yesterday thinking that they're going to be running out different line combinations all through training camp and trying a bunch of different things because Mike Remmers was playing guard with the first team and then we saw uh, Rashad Hill playing right tackle, and then it left guard. And this is with Pat Elfline still recovering, so he'll be healthy by training camp. But uh, Danny Isadora, and we also saw Tom Compton in there at left guard. So there's a competition for that backup guard position, and it seems that there are no answers yet on what they want to do on the right side. Yeah, and I don't anticipate them being able to figure that out for months. Like, you're, this may very well. I mean, look at the situation last year. It was the last week of the season of the preseason before they, you know, made the call that Pat Elfline was going to beat out Nick Easton for the starting center job. And I could very easily see that going down and playing out in a similar way. Um, just because you don't, you know, you still got guys who are injured. Elfline, who knows if he's back at all this spring? I mean, I would, I would think you'd want to slow play that with the ankle. Um, and a second year player, uh, to make sure he's back and healthy for training camp. But, you know, from left to right, if, if you're starting day, week one combination is Reef, Easton, Elfline, uh, Remmers, and Rashad Hill, I think you're okay for now. Maybe eventually as the weeks go on in the season, Brian O'Neill is ready. Um, I just don't know if that's going to be the case right now or if you're going to want to save him to eventually, you know, what they could have done had they gotten him a little bit later and also had a, you know, a, a right guard. And I, this problem is, you know, get the guy and get him ready to be Riley Reef's understudy. You know, why? Well, get this guy ready to be your franchise left tackle uh, in a couple of years. So the protections have gotten better, and I, and I know that that's something that ha- takes time. Um, and certainly working that out in the preseason, that's what you're here to do. But I'm still concerned about it. I still think that, you know, this is, this is the, st- I mean, outside of the bigger overarching storyline of Kirk Cousins and, and all the expectations, this is the storyline of the preseason so and you, the if, off season. If you had to put money down right now, what do you, what would you put your money on for the starting five for day one? What, what, what I just said, I think that that's the safest bet that you could have there. Um, because with Hill at Rashad, right tackle. 
because Rashad Hill's capable. He had a rough go against Cam Jordan, who didn't. Um, he had a rough go in the, again, you know, against the Eagles. Um, and, and he, latter part of the season was starting to regress back to true form, but I think he is capable at right tackle, probably more so than someone like Brian O'Neill. Like you don't want to rush that process. The guy has to put on about 10 pounds. He's been 310 before, so that's not like that difficult. But fact of the matter is he's learning an NFL playbook. He doesn't necessarily have the play strength to go against some of the elite defensive ends um, in the NFL. And that to me is going to be really tough to get him there in a matter of a couple months. So I think out of a contingency plan, having Remmers at right guard, uh, just seems, it just seems like the right thing to do right now. And, and before I was somebody who was like, wait, this, you know, when they drafted O'Neill, that automatically kind of means that, you know, Remmers is going to have to move back to right tackle out of necessity. How Rashad Hill is able to handle that job throughout the preseason, I think will be pretty telling because it just seems like the safest bet right now because we don't know what commodity they have in Danny Isadora. Um, and in, in Tom Compton. And do you want either of those positions to be a revolving door? I, I don't think so. And I think that keeping Remmers at guard prevents that from happening because that seems like that's what could, they could fall into there between those other guys. The, the idea of having Compton at right guard for a starting position to me would, would be nerve wracking. Uh, yeah. Now, I mean, they might argue that once upon a time, Joe Berger showed up as a career backup and then turned out to be in his 30s a really good guard. Um, but I don't know that that's what Tom Compton is made to do. I, I, he's a fit for someone who can pop into left or right guard for a few games here or there and not kill you. And I think Danny Isadora is probably the same way. It's always when a guy hasn't played, we think he's better than he actually is. And I know we've only got a handful of snaps on tape, but it's a fifth-round pick. I mean, if he's ever going to be a starter, it's probably going to take more than just one year, and then you can just throw him in there. That I mean, when you draft somebody in the fifth round, your hope is that they stick on the team, much less that you're asking them to do a whole lot. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I thought he did a nice job with what he was asked to do in Cleveland or against Cleveland in London last year, but... I don't think he's really a part of this competition. So it's almost like it's Rashad Hill versus himself. If Rashad Hill plays really well in training camp and he's shutting down Daniel Hunter and he's doing a great job every day, then he's got that position, I think. And if he struggles and it looks like he hasn't made any progress from last year and he's just okay, then maybe they're going to have to try something else. But from what I see of Brian O'Neill, and it's very, very little of just what we get to see up close, uh, but his size and then some of his technique that we saw yesterday, I, I think he's just not in this conversation yet. That It's possible he could work himself into the conversation, but I don't see it. Weeks into the season, I think he could work himself in. I don't think this is a day one conversation at all. Um, I don't know if it will be. I mean, if the guy comes back in, in the end of July when rookies report and he's 10 pounds heavier, that's one thing. That's great. You know, he's put on the weight before from moving to tight end to tackle. Um, he's done stuff like that. But that's half the battle. Learning this playbook, I mean, he's made for an inside-outside zone scheme. Um, he's athletic enough to run it. We don't. We know that that's not the problem. But play strength is such an underrated aspect of this. Take a look at the size differential when you look at him versus when you look at the other two tackle, right tackles and Mike Remmers and Rashad Hill. 
you need to you need time to to let it marinate and, and let him get ready and not start him before he's ready to play because what did we see in 2016? About 50 combinations of starting offensive linemen due to injury. That's what you want to avoid here and avoid from happening and avoid from having another revolving door. Yeah, and we saw it last year that when even one piece was taken away, what havoc that wreaked on the Vikings' offensive line when Nick Easton got hurt. Um, Something else that I had written down is uh, an interesting subject is Everson Griffin and what we expect from him this year because it's just OTAs, so nobody's fear-mongering. But Everson Griffin not participating and walking around in something that looked like a knee sleeve yeah, can't say for sure if that was some protective thing. It kind of looked like it. It wasn't like Teddy had with a robo leg or anything like that. But with him not participating last week, it, Zimmer downplayed it. But then to have him not back this week, it makes me wonder what we should really expect out of Everson Griffin. Last year, he was the one of the elite players at his position for 80% of the year. And then he gets hurt and then struggled toward the end with his age, where he is with just the regression of how these things usually work from year to year with pass rushers. I don't know if we should expect another 14 sack season from Everson Griffin. I would not be surprised at a regression at all. Um, just given, you know, how well he played the first half of the season. And then you saw those numbers start to decline a little bit as the plantar fasciitis got worse. And, you know, kind of what, what at least this is pointing to, Mike Zimmer said last week that Griffin was held out and it was not the injury from last year. He said he tweaked it, um, you know, in practice. We didn't know that it could potentially, potentially, we have no idea, could be a knee because it looked like a wrap of some sort. Like I was looking at it. You know, sometimes players wear like compression, those Nike Pro, Nike Pro, um, compression leggings underneath their clothing. And I thought that that's might have what it been at first, but that looked more like some sort of protective thing around his knee, around his left knee. Um, so I'm wondering if that's what Zimmer was alluding to from why he missed, you know, the first week of OTAs and then, you know, certainly with yesterday, he was getting his work done on the rehab field. So. I wouldn't be surprised if there is a significant drop off in numbers. Um, I mean, even even as we talk about Everson, somebody who's getting up there in age, he's 29. Um, you know, at this point in his career, we thought the Neil Hunter's numbers drop off from from what 12 and a half sacks in 2016 to where he was. You know, last year it started out slow, ended up picking it up. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a similar type of of regression essentially uh, from Griffin this year. And, and I want to know, too, with Everson, what is going to be done to give him a rest. I mean, he was playing every single snap last year, which you can understand why he would be doing that because he was unbelievable last season. And I don't expect him to all of a sudden not be great, just that historically, if you get 15 sacks or 14 and a half sacks, you're probably not going to be able to repeat that the next year. That's just how it ends up going. Uh, but they really didn't do anything to add another edge rusher. So do we see one of these guys emerge, Stephen Weatherly to Sean Bauer? Do we see them try Anthony Barr in some situations coming off the edge to give Everson a break? It seems that they didn't really do anything to bring in someone else that would clearly be a 20% of the snaps guy who gives somebody a rest. Yeah, and I mean, there's they brought in the pieces for a defensive line rotation, 
But Jalen Holmes is going to, for, you know, in large part, is going to be working under Sheldon Richardson and trying to, they want to move him inside and, and serve as his understudy because who knows how much longer Richardson's going to be around past this season. Um, they don't have that pure edge rusher. Um, I mean, I, I guess unless a day Aruna, I mean, but he's not even, he, that's somebody I consider your situational downs pass rusher where they have eight guys now who can go in, um, you know, an eight, an eight man rotation and have the fresh legs. They don't really have an Everson understudy per se. Um, I, I don't know. And I mean, I think it's good that you have a guy like Brian Robeson back in a reserve role. I wonder how much his role will diminish this year going into season number, what is it? 14, 12, something like that. Like, you know, but I don't know I don't know exactly how they're going to be able to handle Everson's, you know, finding gaps to give him a break because last year he, he overplayed it um, at times. And and certainly, I mean, take a look at the way he was injured. Why was he in a Cleveland blowout in garbage time? Um, That type of stuff can't happen if you're going to protect one of your best pass rushing assets. Yeah. If Bauer doesn't step up, then I'm not sure who else it's going to be. And I guess we've been hearing about Weatherly and we'll be in training yeah. camp and see Weatherly getting reps and think, oh, okay, now maybe he's going to get a chance this year. And then he, he didn't really. And I, I don't know if that's because he hasn't made progress since being drafted or if Bauer wasn't that good in practice last year or if Mike Zimmer just didn't give those guys an opportunity and maybe they'll step up or maybe they believe that those guys will step up if they are given an opportunity. But I could see... You know, this sort of reminds me of like hockey where you'll get a coach who will say, you know, we played that guy, our star player, too many minutes last year. We want to dial it back. And then you look at the end of the year, he's got the same amount of minutes because you get in big situations and you get in a tough season and you just want to ride your best players. And ultimately, I think it did hurt them to some extent last year. Um, so did you have anything else? I've got a couple of questions from emailers here if you want to touch on those. But if you had something else you yeah. wanted to discuss. I think it's going to be one of the more intriguing position battles outside of the number three wide receiver because of the way that at least the first two weeks of OTAs, very small sample size, but the way it's panned out with, you know, Treadwell, Kendall Wright, um, Stacey Coley's absence, and then who knows about the other, you know, stretch of receivers that they have. Outside of that, I mean, the the battle at nickel is only going to be heating up. I mean, we saw Mackenzie Alexander has been taking all the snaps of the ones. Mike Hughes was in with the twos and threes yesterday. I think that in in the where where Hughes has been primarily been playing inside uh, the last couple weeks after Mike Zimmer said that they were planning to start him outside. Maybe he's picking up he's you know picking up with this quicker than we thought, um, which. Is certainly a good thing, and it could make for a really, really good position battle going into camp. And, and that's one for me that is probably the most intrigue on on the entire team. I, I agree, because I, Hughes has a chance to win that job, but Alexander's got a little more experience there. 30% of snaps last year, not all of them were at the nickel. So it was really just a handful when he was filling in for Terrence Newman. But if Hughes can show, I think he's a better athlete and probably a better overall talent. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's going to be better. It just means that he was drafted higher and his physical gifts are, are more impressive. 
Um, so he should win that job if he can pick up on it quickly, but Alexander's now in his third year in Zimmer's defense, which gives him quite a huge leg up at that spot. The, the one area where I thought that Mike Hughes could come in huge, I thought of this yesterday when we saw, and it wasn't anything serious, so nobody freak out, but we saw uh, Xavier Rhodes limp a little. I think he just yeah. got, I think he just got hit in the thigh and it's not, it's nothing, but he had to come out of a lot of games last year with some injury or another. And that's not to say that he's going to get hurt this year, but if anybody does, so we've been talking about the Mike Hughes pick as a future pick. Well, you know, maybe he'll take over for Trey Wayne someday or, or whatever it might be. But if anybody gets injured on defense, you have a first round pick who is a depth player and that might end up coming in handy. That's huge, especially for Waynes and, and Rhodes. I mean, you have somebody who can play quality snaps outside and, and be a great, you know, high value backup. Um, and, you know, I do anticipate he'll see some, you know, he'll see a good number of snaps on defense, if he, even if he doesn't win the nickel position. Um, which, as you said, is a stretch. I mean, like, you don't, anti- you never, they didn't bring him in, bring, bring him in expecting that to happen, but, I, they, you know, they knew from the jump that outside of an explosive kick returner, they've got somebody who is very capable of playing outside, a very physical, fast corner, uh, plays, you know, the game kind of bigger than, than his, than his size at 5'10. That's a huge asset for someone like Xavier Rhodes, who, as you said, went out of several games last year. Nothing, nothing serious that kept him out, uh, made him miss much time, but, you know, to have that option on the outside and not have to scramble through, you know, the the bottom of your of your cornerbacks list, I think is such a big asset. So uh, I've thrown it out there before, but feel free whenever you want to tweet or send email questions to either one of us because I enjoy answering them and we've got time right now at the moment. Um, so we have a listener from Poland, and I think that his name is pronounced Peter but I'm not really sure, so he can maybe clear that up for me. But he tweets both of us sometimes uh, and sends some email questions. So I wanted to answer at least one of these from him. Um, he asks if the Vikings should really be seen as Super Bowl favorites. And I know that ESPN did a thing on this with their projections, and one of their projections did have the Vikings in the Super Bowl and one of the teams that has the highest percentages to make the Super Bowl. So maybe you can kind of explain how that works a little bit. And uh, do you think that they should be in that same conversation as the Saints, the Rams, uh, the Falcons could bounce back too? I mean, where do you put them in that conversation? Repeat that for I kind of got lost in the question. So you want what exactly? You were making coffee, weren't you? No, I wasn't. I'm sitting here staring at my coffee pot. (laughs) I made so, sure I so, wasn't making coffee in the middle of this episode. So the um, ESPN is... The FPI, came, yeah, correct? Yes, the, the FPI. Okay. So they came out with the projections, and the Vikings are one of the teams that have the highest percentage. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a win. It's an over-under. And I think that they've got... I don't exactly know the true formula, so I can't speak to that exactly. Um, but I can speak to where they had the Vikings at, what, 9.4 wins? I took the over. I think that that's... 9.4 should be your base, your bottom of the barrel. Um, there's, as we both predicted, this is a 10, this is a, at minimum a 10 win season for this group, uh, barring catastrophic injury or other unforeseen circumstances. So that's why I took the over. 
they had the Packers, I believe, had a higher a higher uh, percentage uh, somewhere. Like I think they were like ten point something, which I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. You know, a new defensive coordinator and drafting two cornerbacks back to back. I don't know if that really changes things all that much for you, but it, it but it certainly makes this defense. It fixes a lot of holes that they had in their secondary uh, last year. But, you know, for me, this is, you know, tr- truth be told, this is a two-team divisional race. And and I think that's just fair to say in 2018 in the NFC North. So how do you rank your NFC contenders? Like if you were, if I said, all right, you get three teams in the NFC that you have to put all your money on and I get the field, like put it that way. So okay. you bet sure. on three teams to make the Super Bowl from the NFC. I get the field. Who are you picking for the three? Picking Eagles, Vikings, and Rams. Okay, so Packers not in the conversation. Saints? Like you gave me three teams, man. I, know, I, I know. picked my three teams. I know, but I, I'm just saying the other two teams. Of course, that, if I could pick five teams, yeah. those two would have been next. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I I mean that I think those are the the I think that everyone's list would have the Vikings in that three, and then it would be a debate in the Eagles too. It would be a debate about where you put the Saints because they've improved, where you put the Rams if you think they're going to keep it up or get better, if you think the Lions are going to take another step, if you think Dallas is going to bounce back. It's really funny with Dallas that that you know people acted like their season last year was just a calamity, and they still went 9-7. and seven. And they might be a team that looks like they were way down and, and bounces back. I wouldn't put them in my three. Um, you know, Carolina's got North Turner now, so... Mm-hmm. That was sarcasm. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with your three. And so I guess to answer Peter's question, um, it's crowded in the NFC. Very, and very. It's a good year for the NFC. Yeah, you can make a case for a, probably five or six teams that they'll have a really good chance at. The Packers is one we should spend a, a bigger podcast on, as much as that would uh, annoy our Viking fan listeners, because I, I to to look over what they've done in the off season, and I, I just don't see them in there yet in that conversation for the Super Bowl team. Rodgers is the best quarterback, but is the defense really fixed? They let Jordy Nelson go and didn't really replace him. So where does their offense stand? That that's a team that I think is very hard to to project. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, Rogers coming back is one thing, but there's so many other question marks um, on this on that team that I'm not really sure where they stand. I know, I I just I'm I'm kind of curious to, as to why on some of you know with the FPI and some other projections why some some projections have the Packers finishing with a better win loss record than the Vikings. Um, I don't know if I necessarily see that. I think the Vikings are easily top two in the NFC in terms of most complete roster from top to bottom on all positions. I think it's because of Rodgers that even though, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if it should be. I really don't. Yeah. yeah. Do we, do we know is his offensive line? I mean, it can't get any worse than it was last year. Um, but that was such a huge part as we saw it. I mean, the Vikings hope that they're not in that same situation with, you know, that the pick at 30 doesn't come back to bite them for not having taken a day one guard. Uh, but that was a huge part of Aaron's demise last year, early on, before the injury. So one more question. Uh, Danny, who's a regular emailer, uh, sent a question about the, the zone running scheme. And it, it's it, 
with any sort of the question is basically like, what does it actually mean? Why does Delvin Cook work really well in it? Now, I mean, I can explain that rather quickly is just that with the outside zone running scheme where what they're doing is having each lineman move either either way, right or left, and then kind of reach out to whichever guy is to their right or left. And then it creates holes uh, so Cook can be patient and use his explosiveness so he can wait and wait and wait. And then when he spots a hole, he can blow up through it. That's the best way I can describe it. But yeah. I, I think that this Vikings running game is going to be some outside zone, but some of everything because Delvin Cook is just a, an all-around talent, don't you think? Well, I mean, he's so good at reading blocks. Like, that's why you're able to do this because he's patient. Um, obviously, he's never down back, which, you know – but he's patient. He can read blocks in front of him, and he knows he kind of has that great wiggle where he's a cutback guy. He can find the lane. He can, you know, pinch himself through a crease, and there's a home run. Um, it's it's why it fits him so well. And I think that you know, in terms of why this is such a good, this is a good, this is where a lot of the NFL is going, particularly with uh, you know these inside outside zone schemes. Um, it just depends really on what type of running game you want to have and how versatile that running game is too. And I mean, when you have a backfield where, you know, you can place somebody in the, butt, you can place your running backs, either you get one in the backfield, one in the slot. Um, and I would love to see some more of that with, with Cook and Murray this year, just depending upon how they'll be used. Um, kind of what Atlanta did a few years ago. I mean, that to me is, you know, how you create these explosive these explosive gains that come from from your running backs and that uh you know that that was a huge part of what we saw when Dalvin Cook was healthy last year and the Vikings to a degree um you know were able to continue that on long after he was gone they were yeah and Cook is kind of the best of both Jarek McKinnon and uh Latavius Murray in in a lot of ways and how he's used will be worth keeping an eye on but it seems like in every sort of situation third down and long he's going to be in there pass blocking or being the check down option or maybe even scheme to him at times I mean we saw the Eagles in the Super Bowl throw two wheel routes to Corey Clement in big situations that uh, resulted in in huge plays so we might see down the field from Dalvin Cook and in fact uh, John D. Filippo kind of hinted at that even when the first time we talked to him so that will it'll definitely be worth watching and, and that's the thing about uh, any anything that we talk about now with whether it was Shermer West Coast or zone scheme or whatever it might be, every offense is just mix and match with all of these different concepts. And uh, that's where Filippo and all of his experience, I think we're going to see him grab from all the places he's been and all the things that are kind of uh, working in today's NFL. So, yeah. And I, and I don't think even, I mean, yes, by trade, they're an outside zone scheme, but I, I wouldn't put past the fact that we could be seeing some, you know, inside zone stuff too. You know, twelve, eleven personnel. I mean, they've run it before. They don't run a whole ton of it, but I mean, like, there's, there's, when you have those, those type of players around you, I think you're versatile enough and athletic enough to be able to get to the second level. It's an offense that's predicated on movement that you can be versatile in that sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, we will be back again at OTAs next Tuesday. We'll have another subsequent podcast, and then on. Wednesday, you and I are playing golf. We're golfing. And we're going to be out there with the, it's like the Vikings media golf tournament. And I have not golfed in like three years. 
So I've been I've been putting the work in, and reps. I have hope- you been taking reps. I have been getting a lot of reps at the driving range. I played 18 over the weekend. I have been actually putting forth some effort into this just because I don't want to embarrass myself. Uh, I don't know who we're playing with. I don't know if there's any coaches or, or staff. I know that they have the they have their golf tournament afterwards, but I was told that some Vikings staff, maybe from the scouting department, things like that, will be part of this. I don't want to embarrass myself. Um, so I, I think that this, you need to go get some, you need to go get your reps in at the driving range this weekend so we can tag team this together. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta focus on my technique, uh, my quick twitch. Um, I don't know if quick twitch no, wait, and loose yeah. hips it's and all of our hips. things that yeah, we loose talk hips. about, those do not apply in golf. You have to have rotation from the hips are key. You got to have rotation though from your yeah. obliques. You're not talking about loose hips. Like you want to be loose. You don't want to be, have a, a tight stance, but yeah, you're going to have to help me out there. <laughs> yeah. We'll hit them straight. We'll hit them straight. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. And if you have questions for the purple podcast, as always, feel free to send them. You could send them to my email, which is just Matthew collar at Gmail or at both of us on Twitter. And we will talk to you again soon. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama. Nick Saban citing some hypothetical point spreads to prove his point that the tie deserve a spot in the college football playoffs holds little substance when you consider Bama's best win is over Texas. No, the committee got it right. TCU had a great season with far more ranked wins than Bama and didn't deserve to lose their spot after playing a surging Kansas State in a championship game. And Ohio State, while not playing some of their best ball later in the season, was still 12-0 until they came face-to-face with my Wolverines. While the college football playoff system isn't nowhere near as good as it could be, it's better than what we had. And in a few years, it will be better for all of college football. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. And don't forget, BetOnline for the NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts.